We are continuing our series in 1 John, and we're starting into chapter 2 this morning. This first verse from 1 John 2 and verse 1 describes the second reason John authored 1 John. Remember, the first reason is found in chapter 1 and verse 4, and that was so that we could experience complete joy. The second reason is found in chapter 2 and verse 1, we just read, and that was to discourage us from sinning, to discourage us from sinning. Verse 1 begins, my little children, these things I write to you, these things I write to you, this is the second reason, so that you may not sin. God said to us as Christians, don't sin. Don't, 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 don't sin. Those are his instructions to us. Simple enough. Don't sin. But God understands our humanness. In case we do sin, then God has made a provision to accommodate that sin problem. That provision is mentioned in the second part of this verse. And if anyone sins, notice, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus is our advocate in heaven. The word advocate is translated from the Greek word paraclete. Not parakeet, that's a bird. Paraclete. That Greek word paraclete is mentioned five times in the New Testament. John is the only writer to mention that word. Four of those five times are found in John's gospel. Remember, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John's gospel. Um, in John's gospel, that word paraclete is used to describe the Holy Spirit. And that Greek word is translated there as comforter or helper, contingent on the translation. Uh, the Holy Spirit is our comforter and our helper. And uh, that word paraclete means to stand beside someone to help them to stand beside someone to help them. Now in 1 John, where we are, that same word paraclete is mentioned just once and is translated as advocate, not comforter, not helper, as it is in John's gospel. It is translated as advocate, and it describes Jesus, not the Holy Spirit. The word advocate means one who pleads for another in a court of law. An advocate is a legal counselor, an attorney. And in this particular case, this word paraclete describes a defense attorney. Jesus Christ is our advocate in heaven where he acts as our defense attorney. In ancient times, if someone was summoned to court, he brought his advocate, his attorney, to stand beside him to plead his case and defend him. It's interesting, on earth, Jesus' profession was a carpenter, and in heaven, his profession is a, an attorney at law. Romans 8, verse 34. Who was he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen. Who is, meaning who is at this moment, he is also even at the right hand of God who also makes intersection for us. Hebrews 7, verse 25. Therefore he, Jesus from verse 22, is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Intercession means intervening for someone. Jesus makes intercession in heaven through intervening for us as our legal counselor. Verse 1 reads that we are not to sin. We shouldn't sin. But we're human. We're not perfect. And if we do sin, we have an advocate in heaven's courtroom acting as our legal defense against the prosecution from Satan. There have been some amazing attorneys throughout time. But according to the Guinness people, the most successful attorney in modern times was Sir Lionel Legault. Lionel, born in 1914, died in 1997. Lionel was a senior partner of his own law firm from Georgetown, Guyana. 
get this, he succeeded in getting 245 successive murder charge acquittals. 245 successive murder charge acquittals between 1940 and 1985. That is impressive. At age 84, Lionel experienced a profound Christian conversion uh, that so changed him. He started Lagoon Ministries and he became an evangelical apologist. Jesus didn't take the bar in heaven because he didn't need to, but he's been practicing law there almost 20 centuries, and he has a better record than Sir Lionel LeCou. He has never lost. Question, why would we need a defense attorney in heaven? Why is that necessary? Answer, because there is a prosecuting attorney in heaven accusing us of committing spiritual crimes against God. A prosecuting attorney in heaven accusing us of committing spiritual crimes against God. We need a defense in heaven because Satan is there to prosecute us. Satan has numerous names. Someone has counted 17 of them. And one of his most often used names is devil. The name devil means slanderer and accuser. Slanderer and accuser. And that's actually an appropriate name because he is the ultimate accuser. He is our prosecuting attorney because he constantly accuses us to God of committing sin. Revelation 12, starting at verse 7, we've commented on this text before. It's been some time though. Understand right now, Satan doesn't inhabit heaven. I might add, Satan also doesn't inhabit hell. Satan doesn't have an address in heaven, but he still has visitation privileges into heaven. And he goes there to accuse us as Christians of committing sin. But those opportunities he has to do that are going to end at some point. And this particular text comments on that. Verse 7, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. In the eternal past, Satan, who was then known as Lucifer, organized a coup against God. He convinced one-third of the total angel population to join him in that coup. And in doing that, those angels were unfaithful to God. And after that, rebellion became demons. The remaining two-thirds of the angel population remained faithful to God. So angels now exist in two separate basic categories. Two-thirds are faithful angels, and one-third are unfaithful angels that are essentially now demons. So the opposing sides in heaven at this battle are Michael the archangel, and Michael's the only angel mentioned as an archangel in Scripture. Michael the archangel and the faithful angels, and Satan and the unfaithful angels, verse 8. But they, meaning Satan and the unfaithful angels, did not prevail, meaning Satan and his angels lost that battle nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Verse 9, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Verse 10, Then I, this is John, John authored Revelation also, John heard and witnessed this. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. Notice, for the accuser of our brethren, the devil, he is the accuser, who accused them, meaning Christians, in particular Christians from the tribulation period, before our God day and night, has been cast down. This situation we just read about happens at the middle part of the prophetic tribulation period. Remember, the rapture is happening. Jesus returns, snatches out all Christians, rescues us from off the earth, and we go on to heaven. And then after the rapture, there is the tribulation period. The tribulation period is 84 months in length. And this expulsion from heaven um, happens 42 months end of the tribulation period, right at the midpoint. So this is futuristic. There is a war in heaven. The, Mike, the angel 
Archangel Michael and his faithful angels fight against Satan and his unfaithful angels. And Satan loses that battle. And then he and his angels are forced out of heaven. And it's a permanent eviction. At that point, from that point on, Satan will have no more visitation privileges into heaven. And according to verse 10, the inhabitants in heaven are relieved and excited about that. And I can understand. But that's then. And this is still now. At this moment, Satan still has access to heaven. And he goes there to accuse us of committing sins. And notice, he does that day and night, meaning 24-7, 365. Satan accuses us nonstop. Satan approaches God and announces that he has been observing us, engaging in some unholy activities. He brings our spiritual dirt to God's attention because Satan is the ultimate tattletale. And so Satan acts as the prosecution. Satan accuses us of committing sin to God in an attempt to convince God to retract our salvation. He's unsuccessful, though, because each time he does accuse us, Jesus is there as our advocate, our defense attorney, to defend us. Now, this is hypothetical. We're just setting this up. Satan approaches God's throne in heaven's courtroom, and he presents his case. He addresses God and presents the prosecution. So I decided to personalize this since I felt uncomfortable using anyone else in the room. could be embarrassing, so I'll just embarrass myself. Satan's argument in heaven sounds like this. I want to call to this court's attention that on Monday, October 3rd, 2022, at 5.12 p.m., the defendant, Mr. Webb, Larry Ray Webb, pulled up to the intersection of Highway 395 and the 580 bypass. He was driving west on the bypass. He was at the intersection intending to turn left onto Highway 395 en route south to Gardnerville. The light was red as he pulled up to the intersection, and he pulled up right behind an older woman driving a 2018 BMW. Both of them waited. The light turned green, but the sun was so bright, it, it blinded this woman momentarily, so she couldn't see that the light had actually changed. In his impatience, though, Mr. Webb laid on his horn. It was loud, and it was obnoxious. That startled this sweet woman so much, she panicked and stepped on the brake instead of the gas. So once more, the defendant laid on his horn. The woman was so embarrassed, but she started to navigate through the intersection. Apparently, Mr. Webb felt she wasn't moving fast enough. So once both of them made it through the intersection, Mr. Webb pulled up beside this woman, rolled down his window and screamed, Lady, if you can't drive it, then park it. I've not done this. This is make-believe, make okay? I never did this. <laughs> Satan continues his prosecution. I need to remind this court that Mr. Webb is a professing Christian, and to add more seriousness to this charge, he pastors Shadow Mountain Church. He should be held to a higher standard. This is totally unacceptable behavior. Your Honor, I argue for his conviction, and I recommend the harshest punishment possible. And then the prosecution sits down. After hearing that, at that moment, Jesus stands up and starts to argue his defense. Jesus is a most unusual defense attorney, though, because he does not maintain his client's innocence. Instead, he admits his client's guilt. Jesus argues, Your Honor, the defendant, Mr. Webb, pleads guilty to all these accusations. He was impatient. He was discourteous. He was rude. And most of all, he was a terrible representation of a Christian. But although he is guilty, and the defendant admits that, he confesses guilt to all these charges, although he is guilty, let me remind this court that the defendant has been forgiven. At the moment of his salvation, 
And his salvation occurred. He was a child in elementary school. It happened at his home, 7735 Jefferson Street, on the southwest side of Kansas City, about 1031 Sunday night. There in the front room of that house, Mr. Webb received Jesus. And at the moment of his salvation, he received judicial forgiveness from all his sins, past sins, present sins, and future sins, including these sins. And let me remind the court that forgiveness is irreversible. After hearing both arguments, after listening to both sides, God the Father pounds the gavel on the bench. He agrees with the defense, and he announces that all charges against me are dismissed. Satan is upset. Satan, in frustration, slams his attaché case shut and slams it on the table and then mumble some things we cannot repeat in church. The point is the continuance of someone's salvation is not contingent on us not sinning. We are instructed not to sin, but we're human, we're imperfect, and we do sin. The continuance of someone's salvation is not contingent on us not sinning. The continuance of our salvation is contingent on Jesus' ability to defend us in heaven if we do sin. I am convinced true salvation is permanent. Not pretentious salvation, not superficial salvation, not insincere salvation, not counterfeit salvation, but a demonstrable, sincere and true conversion to Jesus Christ is permanent. And it's permanent because Jesus is in heaven acting as our advocate. He presents the defense against Satan's prosecution, and he never loses a case. The best part is he's our legal counsel, and he doesn't charge a retainer fee. Question, what gives Jesus the right to defend us in heaven as our defense attorney? What gives Jesus the authority to defend us as our advocate, our legal counsel? Answer, because Jesus became the propitiation for our sins on the cross. Propitiation, this is just a beginning definition, a sacrifice that satisfies. Jesus could never be our defender in heaven if he weren't first our propitiator on the cross. This is the reason Jesus can argue a case for us, because he was first a propitiator for our sins. I'm guessing no one in this room has ever used the word propitiation in normal conversation. I haven't. That word was part of ancient cultures in biblical times, but it isn't part of our modern culture. It is primarily a biblical and theological word. The Greek word translated into our language as propitiation means appeasement or satisfaction appeasement or satisfaction. Notice verse 2, 1 John 2, verse 2, and he himself, Jesus, is the propitiation, meaning the sacrifice that satisfies. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. John repeats that statement in 1 John 4, verse 10. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that He, God, loved us. Salvation starts at God and sent His Son, Jesus, to be the propitiation for our sins. Notice Romans 3, verse 25, whom Jesus, from the preceding verse, Jesus, God sent forth as a propitiation by His blood. The Greek word translated as propitiation in this verse from Romans is related to, but is not the same exact word as the word translated as propitiation in our text from verse John 2 and verse 2. The particular Greek word used in Romans 3 verse 25 is the word that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, remember about 250 B.C., uh, the Hebrew Bible was translated into the Greek language. We call that the Septuagint. And that word in the Septuagint means mercy seat. 
And mercy seat refers to a special piece of furniture in both the ancient tabernacle and temple. This concept called propitiation was part and parcel to ancient Jewish worship and had a direct connection to this mercy seat. I am embarrassed to admit that in all this time, we have never addressed the specifics of the mercy seat. So we're going to do that this morning. The tabernacle was the portable temporary worship center the people carried, the Jewish people carried, through the desert to the land God had promised them. The tabernacle would be set up, used for worship for a period of time, then taken down and moved. And that at another location, set up, used for worship, taken down and moved. And that would be repeated over and over throughout the journey to Canaan. It was portable. It was temporary. Then in Jerusalem, the people constructed a permanent stationary worship center called the temple. Solomon's temple, the first temple, was a magnificent complex. In both the tabernacle and then in the temple, there was a special room that acted as an inner sanctum. It was called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. Now, this picture... Uh, features a cutout of the Holy of Holies. You can see uh, it's cut out. There's a curtain there or veil between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the tabernacle, and it's cut out. Uh, That veil or curtain was 60 feet in length, 30 feet in height, and four inches thick. Four solid inches thick. Tradition said it was so heavy it required 300 priests to hang that curtain. It was so strong it is said teams of horses pulling in opposite directions couldn't pull it apart. And still, what happened to that curtain at the death of Jesus? It was torn in half from the top to the bottom and no man tore that curtain. God did. It symbolized our immediate access to God. We don't have to go through an Aaronic priesthood. So the Holy of Holies was the most sacred place in Judaism because God actually met with his people inside that most holiest place. That room was not accessible, was not available to the people except to one man. And that one man was the Jewish high priest. And it was only available to him on a special day called Yom Kippur. If the high priest attempted to enter the Holy of Holies at a time other than on Yom Kippur, he would drop dead. The Hebrew word Yom meant day. Kippur meant atonement. So Yom Kippur meant day of atonement. Religious Jewish people now... Not all Jewish people are religious. Probably most of them are more secular than religious. Religious Jewish people now still celebrate Yom Kippur. It started at sundown on Tuesday, this past October 4th, and ended on Wednesday, October 5th. The celebrants during that time fast for 25 hours, spend time praying, attend synagogue services, Uh, in addition to abstaining from sexual relations, avoiding oils and lotions, no bathing, and no wearing of shoes. So Yom Kippur now is much different than Yom Kippur in biblical times, as there is now no Levitical priesthood, there's no temple since the Roman armies invaded Jerusalem in 70 AD and destroyed the Jerusalem temple, No priesthood and no temple means no animal sacrifice, and so no actual atonement. Inside that ancient Holy of Holies was a box, and that box was called the Ark of the Covenant. It's what Indiana Jones supposedly was searching for, and I guess he found it, and it's stored in a warehouse in Detroit. I'm not sure. (laughs) The word Ark means container. And that container had three things stored inside it. First, Aaron's rod that budded. Second, a pot of manna. 
And third, the stone tablets that had written on them the Ten Commandments. Those commandments were part of the covenant God made with Moses on Mount Sinai. That's the reason it's called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was made from acacia wood, overlaid with pure gold both inside and out. And on top of the box was a lid also made from gold. That lid was called the mercy seat. That mercy seat was where propitiation occurred. At the ends of the mercy seat were images or small statues of cherubs. Cherubs are angel-like creatures that are assigned to guard the holiness of God. Remember, we believe Lucifer... Satan's original name, Lucifer, originated as a cherub before he rebelled against God. On Yom Kippur, God would manifest his actual presence inside that Holy of Holies in the form of a multicolored bright cloud of light called his Shekinah. And that Shekinah would be visible above the mercy seat between those cherubs. That light, that bright, multicolored cloud of light above the mercy seat was the visible manifestation of God's actual presence. Before entering the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, the high priest was to bathe and put on, a, on special garments the high priest wore. Then he was to sacrifice a bull as a sin offering for himself and his household. The bull's sacrificial blood was to be sprinkled on that mercy seat. Then the high priest was to find two goats. He was to sacrifice one goat for the sins of all the people, and its blood was to also be sprinkled on the mercy seat. Then the second goat was to act as a scapegoat. Probably most of us have no idea where that word originated. In the 16th century, there was an English theologian and linguist. He was brilliant. He knew fluently eight different languages. His name was William Tyndale. William Tyndale was so concerned that the common people, the English people, should have the Bible in their own language. It had been written in Latin. And uh, there had been portions of the Bible um, written in English, from about the 7th century, but William Tyndale was the first one to translate the entire Hebrew Old Testament into English. Not from the Latin Vulgate, but from the original Hebrew. And it was printed. Before then, Bibles were hand-copied, but the printing press had just been invented, and Tyndale was able to produce a copy of the Bible in modern English. Um, now, the Catholic Church uh, was upset at that. The Catholic Church did not want the Bible in the language of the common people because knowledge is power, and Catholicism wanted to keep the people suppressed, didn't want them to know only what the church wanted them to know, didn't want them to have the Bible for themselves. So Catholicism considered William Tyndale a heretic in 1536, at age 42, he was strangled to death and then burned because Catholicism taught heretics were to be burned. I'm sure the Catholic Church is ashamed of that at this time, but that's what happened. And so he created that word scapegoat. In fact, a number of words and phrases in our modern English language originated with William Tyndall, my brother's keeper. Mercy seat, it is said, he created that word. The high priest placed his hands on the head of this goat and confessed the sins of the Israelites and then sent the goat out to be released into the wilderness. Remember, he's a scapegoat. And in a symbolic sense, that goat carried away the sins of the people which were considered forgiven for another 12 months until the next Yom Kippur. In theological language, that's expiation. That's the removal of someone's sins. Let me explain what happened. The ark contained those tablets of stone onto which were written the Ten Commandments. Those tablets were a visible representation of God's law. And the Jewish people violated that law all the time 
just as we do now. God's wrath against those that violate his law has to be appeased. If God was going to forgive sinners and save them from eternal judgment, then his wrath had to be appeased and placated. Placated means to cause someone to be angered less or no longer angered at all. God's wrath toward the people's sins was placated, appeased, propitiated through the blood of an innocent animal sacrifice. That innocent innocent animal sacrifice acted as a propitiation for the people's sins. Because of that sacrifice, God was satisfied at that moment. He was appeased at that moment, but he wasn't completely satisfied. Those animal sacrifices didn't result in entire and permanent satisfaction. Instead, those sacrifices pointed to the ultimate sacrifice that would entirely and permanently satisfy and appease God. And that was the human sacrifice of his son Jesus on the cross. Keith Getty is a northern Irish songwriter and a prolific modern hymn writer. His friend and co-writer is an Englishman named Stuart Townen. Some time ago, those men collaborated together and in 2012 released a song we just sang this morning, just moments ago, called In Christ Alone. It is, that is their collaboration. It is an extremely popular song, but it is problematic to some people. The Presbyterian Church USA abbreviated PCUSA, is the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States, although it is declining in membership on an annual basis. It's in a period of deep decline. It is known for its liberal or progressive position on different social issues, such as same-sex marriage. That denomination ordains members of the LGBTQ community, ordains them as deacons, trustees, elders, and ministers. The denomination put together a committee to create a new hymnal. And that committee wanted the song, In Christ Alone, included in that hymnal. But only under one condition. And that condition was to receive permission from the co-writers to remove one line from the second stanza of that song. These are the words to that second stanza and Don't be nervous, I am not going to sing it. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. Probably most people cannot guess which line that committee wanted removed. It turns out the problematic lines were, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And in particular, that committee wanted that line, the wrath of God, that describes propitiation, the wrath of God was satisfied. That committee wanted that line removed and replaced with wording that would be less offensive to them. Keith Getty and Stuart Townend received that request and refused to give them permission to do that and good for them. So that committee scrapped that idea, and that hymn was not included in the hymnal. The point is, the subject of God's wrath upsets modern man's sentiments. It's disconcerting to us. It's intolerant, it seems. The problem is that those liberal Presbyterians didn't understand this theological word called propitiation. In order to understand propitiation, we first need to understand God's wrath. Notice the definition. God's wrath is the just and measured response of His holiness toward sin. God's wrath is the just and measured response of His holiness toward sin. God's wrath is something that is provoked. 
It is a response on his part to our sin. But the modern mind doesn't want to accept that. Robert A. Wilson died in 2007. He was an author, futurist, and a self-described agnostic mystic, whatever that is. He made the statement, the Bible tells us to be like God. And then on page after page, it describes God as a mass murderer. Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers, a man we owe much as a nation. He valued religious freedom, but never believed himself. He made this statement, the Old Testament accounts reveal God to be cruel, vindictive, capricious, and unjust. The problem is some people see God in the Old Testament as being different from God in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God is seen as this totally wrathful being, and in the New Testament, God is seen as being pure love as demonstrated through His Son, Jesus. That is a misunderstanding. God is the same in both Testaments. God is immutable. Immutable means God cannot change. God cannot change from who He is as God. Malachi 2 verse 6, For I am the Lord, I do not change. James 1 verse 17, Every good gift and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, meaning God the Father, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Hebrews 13 8, Jesus Christ, who is God in human form, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's character cannot change. God's attributes cannot change. God's nature cannot change. God cannot change from who He is as God. God is the same in both Testaments. He is both wrathful and He is also love. God is the same identical, unchangeable God in both Testaments. In His absolute holiness, He cannot tolerate sin. And in His absolute love, He is merciful and gracious and compassionate and wanting to forgive all those that would repent. If we're sincere, we admit there are some bothersome things mentioned in the Old Testament. As an example, God sent a massive global flood and wiped out the entire human population, consisting of probably millions, except for eight people aboard an ark. Then under Moses' direction, as part of the tenth plague, God executed all the firstborn children in the Egyptian households. Thousands died. Then God commissioned the Jewish people to commit genocide against different ancient civilizations such as the Amalekites and Canaanites. So people derive from those examples that God was extremely violent, brutal, out of control, and cruel. Not understanding that those ancient societies were exterminated because of the seriousness of their sin. If God had permitted just a small remnant of those societies to survive, then those people would have repopulated and chances are those people would have resumed their evilness and aggression against the Israelites. Those societies were much worse and more anti-Semitic than were the Nazis. Those were vicious and warring people committed to the absolute extinction of the Jewish people and God couldn't tolerate that. But God wasn't cruel. Besides, God was patient and gave all those people and societies and civilizations ample time to repent. Sometimes God gave those people actual centuries to repent. And whoever did repent, God spared them from judgment. One example of that was Nineveh. Read that account from the book of Jonah. Another example from Joshua 2 was Rahab and Rahab's household before the total destruction of Jericho. God gave people a chance to repent, and those that did, he spared from judgment. We were raised just 11 miles from the Truman Library in Independence, Missouri. We were in a suburb uh, north, just north of Kansas City. So much about Truman's role in ending the Second World War is chronicled there in fantastic exhibits. 
I recommend people visit. It is a phenomenal museum. Truman's achievements as presidents was massive. The nation of Israel actually owes its existence to Truman. I might add, Truman was the only president that didn't attend college. Before late summer in 1945, Japan had lost World War II, and Japan understood that, but it refused to surrender. The Japanese concentration camps held prisoners in barbaric, inhumane conditions and exposed them to incredible cruelty. In attempting to stop the war and all these senseless human atrocities, President Truman had four options available to him. This is an illustration, so these, these aren't on the note sheet. Option one, continue conventional bombing of Japanese cities. The U.S. had been doing extensive bombing. In the previous 18 months, an estimated 333,000 Japanese died in air raids, and another 473,000 Japanese were injured. And still the Japanese were stubborn and wouldn't surrender. A second option, invade Japan using ground troops. That would just result in more U.S. and Japanese casualties, though. U.S. casualties on Okinawa amounted to 35% of our troops. And that didn't count Japanese casualties. Truman was afraid that a U.S. ground invasion would resemble Okinawa from one end of Japan to the other. Truman wanted to minimize casualties on both sides. Third, demonstrate the bomb on an unpopulated island. This option was to drop an atomic bomb on one of Japanese uninhabited islands and in doing so demonstrate to the Japanese the utter devastation of the bomb and frighten the Japanese into surrender. That was problematic though. We only had two manufactured bombs at that time um, and no one was certain the bombs would function according to design. The bombs could be a dud if so, the Japanese would just be emboldened to continue the war. Plus, it wouldn't be smart to use 50% of our atomic arsenal in a demonstration. The fourth option, and the one Truman chose, drop the bomb on an inhabited Japanese area. There were careful criteria, though, used to determine the target cities such as it needed to be an area primarily devoted to military production. And it couldn't be, according to Truman, couldn't be an area of traditional cultural significance to Japan. The objective wasn't to destroy Japanese culture or Japanese people. The objective was to prevent Japan from continuing the war. That was it. So on the morning of August 6, 1945, the American B-29 bomber called the Enola Gay dropped the first atomic bomb on the city of Hiroshima. Hiroshima or Hiroshima, both are acceptable pronunciation. It was called a little boy bomb. The result was the temperature near the blast site reached 4,500 degrees Fahrenheit. To better understand the severity of that temperature, there are different forms of steel. 90% of all manufactured steel is called carbon steel, meaning it is an alloy mixture of iron and carbon. In general, most carbon steel melts at 2,500 degrees. That atomic blast created temperatures of 4,500 degrees. It was so hot, birds ignited into fireballs in midair. Asphalt literally boiled. People more than two miles from the blast center burst into crumbling cinders. Men whose feet were instantly burned off stumbled about on the charred stumps of their ankles. Women without jaws screamed incoherently for help. Human bodies described as boiled octopuses littered the streets that were no longer streets. And Hiroshima literally disappeared. This is just an example. The devastation was extensive. 80,000 Japanese died as a direct result of that bomb. Another 35,000 were injured. And in a matter of months, another 60,000 would be dead from that bomb's effect. Radiation in particular. And then on August 9, 
The second and larger bomb was dropped on Nagasaki with similar results, effectively ending the war. Mr. Truman never apologized for the decision to drop those bombs. In response to a minister who begged Truman to stop the bombing, Truman said this, quote, The only language the Japanese seem to understand is the one we have been using to bomb them. When you deal with a beast, you have to treat them as a beast. Question, were Mr. Truman's actions, were his orders to drop those bombs, were those actions cruel? when he ordered those weapons to be dropped on Japan? Most normal, sensible, and reasonable people would answer, no, he wasn't. The president's actions weren't cruel. Those actions stopped massive cruelty. I'm certain some pacifists would protest, and uh, liberal progressives and cultural Marxists on the left would never agree to that. But common sense would argue that Mr. Truman, in doing what he did, wasn't cruel, and people neither was God. Russian President Vladimir Putin, who is borderline insane, has recently threatened to use nuclear weapons against us, and he insists he's not bluffing. The U.S. and Russia have 92% of all existing nuclear weapons, and Russia has more than we do. If there's ever a nuclear exchange between Russia and the U.S., then it's pretty much over. Mr. Putin is completely unpredictable, and he is in and of himself significant motivation to receive Jesus so that if a nuclear warhead comes down, we're going up. The point is most people don't understand that God's wrath is consistent in both Testaments. And God's love is also consistent in both Testaments. As an example, we use the words grace and mercy often. Probably grace more than mercy. Grace is when we receive what we don't deserve. We deserve nothing good, so all that we have that is good we have received from God because of His incredible grace. And then there's mercy. We just described the mercy seat. The word mercy means we don't receive what we do deserve. If a court has found us guilty of committing a serious crime and the judge is about to issue us a sentence, then we probably want that sentence to be a merciful sentence. If the crime carries a maximum sentence of a decade in prison, then we're praying the judge is merciful toward us and assigns us a sentence of something much less than that. Yes, we deserve justice, but we want mercy. We don't want to receive what we do deserve. The word mercy is mentioned over 260 times in the Bible. And 72% of those instances are from the Old Testament. That's more than a 3 to 1 ratio. The word love is mentioned more than 300 times in Scripture. About half of those instances are in each testament. So there's an equal emphasis on love in both Old and New Testaments. There's little mention of eternal punishment in the Old Testament, but there are numerous references to eternal retribution in the New Testament. We actually derive most of our doctrine about hell from the New Testament. And Jesus himself mentioned hell more than any other New Testament character. Notice the definition as we wrap this up. Propitiation, this is an expanded definition. Propitiation means God's, Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross satisfied the demands from God's justice. Remember, justice demands that sin be punished. Jesus' sacrificial death satisfied those demands, and in doing that, appeased, propitiated, lessened, eliminated God's wrath and anger against our sins. This last slide illustrates propitiation. The human figure on the left represents us as sinners. The fireball on the right represents God's wrath against our sin. Notice it's a massive fireball because we cannot begin to understand the utter extent of God's anger toward our sin. Notice Jesus' bloody sacrifice on the cross satisfied the demands from God's justice. Justice demands our sins be punished, and Jesus was punished 
for those sins himself. And then notice the fireball stops at the cross because Jesus' sacrificial death was the propitiation for our sins, meaning his death appeased or placated or actually eliminated God's wrath toward us once we receive him. So there's just one thing standing between us and God's wrath, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. There have been numerous notable and famous deaths throughout time. On August 12, 30 B.C., Cleopatra committed suicide through being poisoned from the bite of a poisonous Egyptian snake. On January 21, 1793 A.D., the immortal and treasonous Queen of France, Marie Antoinette, was beheaded on the guillotine. And some of us remember this November 22nd, 1963, then President John Kennedy was shot and assassinated as he rode in the presidential motorcade through Dealey Plaza in Dallas. It's interesting, though. No one wears a miniature bottle of poison on a bracelet. No one wears a miniature guillotine on a necklace around his neck. No one wears a miniature gun as an earring or on a cuff link. But millions and millions of people wear crosses. The cross is the most often used and worn symbol in existence because even after 20 centuries, it has a privileged status. It has a privileged status because on that cross, Jesus, Yeshua, became the propitiation, the sacrifice that satisfied for our sins. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, thank you for what we've learned. I'm sure we've touched on things that are unfamiliar to some of us, but I hope, I hope they've been understandable. We are most appreciative of the sacrifice of your son Jesus. On that cross he became the propitiation for our sins. He appeased your wrath. He placated your wrath. He diminished and lessened and eliminated your wrath toward us if we receive you. And my prayer is that we have received you. And if there's anyone in this room that hasn't, I pray, dear God, that they would really consider doing that today. I pray that they will come to me and ask to set up an appointment so we can sit down and I can share with them how they, they can have Jesus for themselves. God, we live in difficult times. We know that. We're so grateful that you're our hope, you're our rock, you're our refuge, and we are trusting you to help us through all that we experience. So we commit this time to you, our picnic, everything. Uh, we just commit to you, and we ask it all in the name of your mighty son, Jesus. Amen and amen.